Eros deute molusimele stone, Lucupicron amacanon orpiton. Welcome to Sweet Bitter, a podcast where we investigate the truth and controversy surrounding Sappho, her life, the Isle of Lesbos, and her relevance today. We're your hosts, Ellie Brigida and Lisa Charlotte. This episode, we'll be taking a deep dive into the most recent discovery of Sappho's poems. As we do each episode, we're going to start with one of Sappho's fragments chosen by our resident poet, Elise. Stay tuned until the end of the episode to hear our own version of the poem as a song. Elise, will you tell us more about the poem? I'm going to read to you today fragment 58 from Anne Carson's 2002 translations, If Not Winter. Here we go. When there are gaps in the text, and there are a lot, I'll do a dramatic pause so you can hear how fragmented it is. Running away... Bitten, you makes away with the mouse. Beautiful gifts, children. Song delighting, clear sounding liar. All my skin, old age already. Hair turned white after black. Knees do not carry like fawns. But what could I do? Not possible to become dawn with arms of roses, bringing to the ends of the earth, yet seized, wife, imagines, might bestow. But I love delicacy, and this to me, the brilliance and beauty of the sun, desire has allotted. I just, I love, I want to just like, be like, what are your favorite little phrases? Like my favorite is, but I love delicacy. (laughs) (laughs) just that one phrase me too me too Sappho um (laughs) Sappho's just incredible but like just like three words you pause and like I don't know like what's the one about there's something about dawn it's just such a beautiful phrase dawn with arms of roses yeah dawn with arms of roses common Greek um epithet that you'll hear you'll hear dawn referred to as rosy fingered or rosy armed dawn dawn so it's like um a really commonplace um, expression, but it somehow sounds new out of Carson's mouth, out of Sappho's mouth. You know, like it's, it's different than like Homer or anybody else. It's just, it's gorgeous in its fragmentation and I love it too. Why did you choose this particular poem for this episode? I chose this poem because the version that I just read, like I said, was published in 2002. But here's the thing, a whole bunch more of this poem was discovered in 2004. And it completed a lot of those gaps that you heard me read. So on our next episode, this is a two-part episode. And at the beginning of our next episode, I will read you the more complete version of this poem as translated by Carson again after the 2004 discovery. So this poem captures how exciting it is that with Sappho, her poems are all full of gaps and they're all fragments, but we're still discovering more and more of them and filling in those gaps. And it's just really, really exciting. I love it. What if we find more Sappho fragments during this podcast? Oh my god! What if right. we just went on? Us personally, we, we did. Just, I'll I'll Egypt. in my room. I think no, <laughs> yeah, I think we will. I think that's the goal here, right? But how? Just how cool would that be if we like, you know, Google News Alert Sappho? Totally. Like tomorrow, so cool. a new fragment was discovered. It's very exciting. Yeah, it could happen at any minute. Anytime. It's almost as exciting as the story that we're going to cover in the next two episodes, which we did discover after we had conceptualized this podcast, which is just 
so wild. I remember when we found out about it and there was this flurry of text between all of us, just like, oh my God, I cannot believe this. So super excited to tell that story. I should clarify something along those lines before we get into it, which is that um, the poem I just read is known as the old age poem because Saf was talking about growing old. Um, the poems that we're going to be talking about, the poem that we're going to be talking about for our next two parts of this two-part episode is a different poem. It's not the old age poem. The one we're going to be talking about in the next few episodes is known as the Brothers poem. And it was also a new discovery of Sappho, but one mired in controversy, which you'll hear all about. And um, for ethical reasons, we chose to read the old age poem instead of the Brothers poem to frame these next two episodes. Well, thank you so much, Elise, for sharing that with us and all the work you've done. Elise has done so much on this episode. So thank you so much for that. Anytime. Our I mean, favorite researcher. Our favorite. <laughs> we don't know. Without you, Ellie and I would just be floundering around singing songs by ourselves. <laughs> that is my, true. Y'all are my favorite <laughs> podcast host. More than Ira Glass. Well, you know, it's wow, pretty what a compliment. That is high praise. We're coming for you, Ira. <laughs> <laughs> well, for all of you out there, <laughs> unless you want to hear us just talk to each other about how much we love each other all episode. Isn't that what people come here for? Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to dig more into our episode. As we said at the beginning of this episode, we'll be discussing the most recent discovery of Sappho's poems today. We had no idea what we were getting into when we decided to do a podcast about Sappho in terms of this recent controversy. It's a really detailed and fascinating story, and we need at least the next two episodes to cover it because it's just, there's so much here. So before we get into the episode today, everything in the upcoming podcast is alleged, as it is now, please take this as a disclaimer for the whole episode. Everything we touch on in this episode has been reported in reputable news outlets or academic journals, and we are simply relaying that information to you. That being said, we hope you enjoy these two episodes and this massive tangent that we never expected. So first of all, we'll be hearing from our favorite papyrologist, Malcolm Choate, who we spoke to extensively last week, and we've had amazing feedback from all of you about him. So really excited to have him on again. The second voice that you'll hear in the next clip belongs to Ariel Sabah, who is a journalist for The Atlantic, who helped uncover this whole story. But first, here's Malcolm. I'm just going to like get one of my departmental administrators to come and interrupt me in four hours time when I'll be a third of the way through the story. There's just been a perfect series of scandals. The Sappho part really begins publicly in early January of 2014 when Dirk Obink, he's one of the most illustrious figures in classics. He's a MacArthur Genius Award winner, viewed as one of the top people in classics, largely because of his talent at reconstructing language and, and reconstructing the fragments of papyrus from antiquity, particularly Greek poetry and Greek philosophy. That's how he sort of built his career. He graduated from Stanford, won the MacArthur Genius Award, went to Columbia University, and in 1995 moved to Oxford University, which houses the largest collection of manuscripts in the ancient world. It's a collection of a half a million papyri known as the Oxyricus Collection, after a town in Egypt, a long lost town in Egypt, where like the largest cache of papyrus have ever been found. In fact, many earlier fragments of, of Sappho come from Oxyricus. And this is the same provincial Greek capital, you know, again, thriving sort of second century to, to seventh century AD. And so Dirk Obink, um, in January of 2014, he presides over again, presides over the largest papyrus collection in the world. He announces that he has discovered two new poems by Sappho. 
And um, this is international news. I mean, it's, it's a huge, huge deal because as I'm sure you know, as, as, as folks who've worked on this podcast, there are very, very few surviving complete poems of Sappho. There are a lot of fragments. There are very few, I don't know, maybe one, one or two complete poems, depending on who you talk to. So the fact that he's discovered two new poems on a single sheet of papyrus, about seven by four inches, is major news. I mean, it's covered around the world. It makes headlines. And, uh, you know, he's discovered two poems. Uh, one, one is known as the Brothers poem, in which Sappho addresses two of her, two of her brothers. The other is known as the Kippers poem, which is a poem about unrequited love addressed to Kippurus, which is another name for, for Aphrodite. So these are, you know, they're sort of poems that really greatly deepen and enlarge the material that scholars of Sappho have to work with. And that's very exciting in the world of classics. I mean, Sappho is one of the most revered figures in classics. And the frustrating thing for a lot of scholars is that there's not a lot to work with. So that sounds really exciting. More Sappho? I know. It's like exactly what we were just talking about we would love to happen right now. Dream come true. It made pretty big headlines. And Obing said some um, pretty, he said some things. One quote from him is, for three months, it was just me and a girl called Sappho. It was like being on an island with Marilyn Monroe. So that's a quote that he said to the BBC. So to confirm, this was his discovery and his alone. We're going to hear more about that from Ariel. If the story had a happy ending, perhaps it would end there. Um, but one of the things that really um, troubled a lot of fellow scholars was that Dirk Obink, when he announced this in 2014, did not tell anyone where the papyrus came from. And it was like this major omission. And, and you know, maybe back 100 years ago, if you made a discovery, it was kind of cool to say, hey, I, yeah, just someone's great uncle had this in their closet. I don't need to tell you who the great uncle was. I don't need to tell you where they lived. Don't need to tell you much. I'll just sort of give you this sort of quick cover story. And then we can just move on to talking about this really exciting text. But in the year 2014, the ethics in, in archaeology and in papyrology had really greatly changed. And that's because of the sense that when a scholar, particularly a scholar of Dirk Obink's um, eminence, lends his name to a papyrus, the financial value of that papyrus uh, as something that someone might want to sell goes through the roof. It's a sort of intellectual laundering of a papyrus whose origins are unclear. And the other concern is that because of the, all the recent conflict in the Middle East, you have terrorist organizations like ISIS and other opportunists who are actually looting um, really important archaeological sites across the Middle East, Syria, Egypt, other places. When professors get involved in helping authenticate a find whose origin is unclear, the, the concern among scholars is that they're encouraging illegal looting, illegal import of papyri from the country's origins, and also potentially forgery. So I didn't get a chance to actually sit in on these interviews, but Lisa, you were there. So can you clear a few things up for me? First of all, what is provenance? Provenance is just a word to refer to the origins of the document, like where it came from and its ownership history. And he talks about looting too. So what does he mean by that? Okay, so I'm going to let our next guest, who is Canadian classicist and papyrologist Mike Sampson, another favorite papyrologist. We, we, we said Malcolm's our favorite. You're all our favorite. So he's going to talk about this. He explained a little more to us about what looting is and why provenance matters. Looting is defined as the unauthorized excavation of archaeological heritage and cultural heritage. Typically, when a dig takes place in a country like Egypt or Greece or Italy or any country that you know, has, has a rich archaeological heritage, those digs are sanctioned with the appropriate legal permits from the governing authorities. The first reason is the law. 
Egyptian legislation has, since 1983, effectively prohibited the domestic trade in antiquities. And so any item that cannot be demonstrated to have left Egypt prior to that date was exported illegally and in violation of Egyptian law. That's the big one. The next one is that UNESCO passed a resolution on the protection of cultural heritage in the early 1970s. And the date of the UNESCO convention is typically used by scholarly associations, the Archaeological Institute of America, the American Society of Papyrologists, the Society for Classical Studies, all invoke this date as sort of the ethical red line in the sand. If you don't know that the object you're working on was exported and in a collection before that date, you essentially are asked not to work with it and to not be involved either directly or indirectly in its study or its publication. And the reason for that ethical standard is that the only check that scholars can place on the illegal trade in antiquities is to say, no, we're not interested in material that is potentially looted. And so as a scholar, if somebody comes to me and says, I've got this crazy new papyrus and I want you to look at it and authenticate it, my first question is, where did you get it? And where does it come from? Because if you can't demonstrate to me that it's not loot, I'm not going to look at it. We have to control this at the buyer end. The thing that will stop the market is people stopping buying them. You can't go and guard every site in Egypt or guard every museum. What you can stop is people buying them. And so that's why we said there needs to be code of ethics. Right. If you have demand, then supply will arise to, to meet that demand. And so the reality of looting in the Middle East, especially in the years following the Arab Spring, is that this is happening. Um, and it's been happening for a long time before that. The Iraq War, first Iraq War, is another good example of sort of political events leading to, to widespread looting. Because there is demand, supply is going to arise to meet that demand. And when scholars enter the equation, there's very little we can do. You know, in, for the most part, I, I'm not a rich man. I have a family. I'm not out there collecting you know, valuable antiquities because I don't have the money and because I'm more interested in studying them than in having them on my mantelpiece. And the only check that as a scholar I can place on that illegal trade, apart from getting up and saying this is wrong, is to disassociate myself from it. Because if a papyrus comes to light, no looter is going to know what it is. It's going to have to be brought to a scholar, to a papyrologist, to, to read it, to authenticate it, and to determine what in fact it is. And the scholar, therefore, plays a really important role in this, this cycle of looting in the antiquities market. Because if we don't involve ourselves, then all of a sudden it's just a piece of scrap paper that's you know hundreds of years old. And who knows whether it's worth anything. But the moment you set foot as a scholar and you start involving yourself in objects that have been looted or that are on the antiquities market, um, what you're doing is legitimizing it. You're saying that this is real, this is okay. What you're doing is you're authenticating it. You're setting, in fact, this is, in fact, new fragments of Sappho. And what you're, the message that you're sending to the rest of the world is that it's okay to do this. And that's why ethically, you know, these professional standards are encouraging us essentially to, to back off and to say, no, the only check that we can place on it is to say, no, no, we're not going to be involved. I'm not going to look at it for you. I'm not going to authenticate it. And I'm not going to increase the commercial value. You know, if I step in and say, this is brand new Sappho. We've never seen it before. Nobody's ever looked at it. New poetry, five new stanzas. This is a unique and you know, groundbreaking discovery. The looter is going to look at that and say, okay. And what's he going to do? He's going to go and he's going to keep digging. And so when scholars involve themselves in the market in this way, what they're essentially doing is encouraging it. Um, and increasing the commercial value of the items on the antiquities market is a surefire way to pour fuel on the fire. 
Okay, so from what Mike and Malcolm are saying, it sounds like it's really important they figure out where these papyri came from. Absolutely. You don't want to be working on a document if it was uncovered via looting, because then it makes you part of the problem and you're creating a demand for the documents. And so, of course, illegal artifact dealers are going to meet that supply. So this involves violence, this involves child labor, and of course, just straight up theft of cultural artifacts from its home nation. And so the way that I thought about this when we were having it explained to us is it's sort of like the idea that people like us as individuals can change climate change from happening, right? So we have this idea that's sold to us by corporations and governments that we're individually responsible. But at the end of the day, it's corporations and governments who kind of decide how we do everything in life. And it's up to them to make the difference. So I guess in this analogy, we are the artifact dealers and they are the people who are buying the papyrus. And so that's sort of how I like to think about it. Anyway, we were so, so grateful to speak to Asamagad. We really wanted to speak to somebody who was an Egyptian scholar and he is an Egyptian classicist and digital humanist specialized in papyrology. And I will let him take it from here. If you ask yourself, why are the people in Egypt, you know, are still digging under their houses or illegally searching for antiquities, you know, they cannot sell it in Egypt. It has to be exported. So uh, we have, you know, this proverb in, in my village, you know, you don't blame the one who stole the duck. It's a village and the duck is important. So you don't blame the one who stole the duck, but blame the the one who is buying ducks illegally you know so this is a very small thief you know you know but the big one the bigger names the market you know you have to blame the market you know like this you know so the market is not in egypt as i say the market is in europe the market in the united states it's very complicated because it's an international matter but again you know we will continue to have this as long as we do have a market. So by the time 2014 rolled around, and in the wake of the Gospel of Jesus' wife scandal in 2012, which was also had reappeared in 2014, and in the wake of a number of high-profile cases involving things like cuneiform tablets, because you may remember there are a couple of wars in Iraq earlier in this millennium, and mysteriously thousands of cuneiform tablets had appeared on the market, very unmysteriously, of course. And so when Dirk Obink published the Sappho Papyrus and refused to say anything about where it came from, people would say, stop. So a bunch of us, particularly Roberta Matza in Manchester, who's writing a book now on this entire affair, Doug Boyne in Texas, me in my own way, Bryce Jones, paparologist from Canada, and a bunch of other people at the time, including a bunch of classes, Francesca Tronton, various people like that, started saying no. We need to know where this came from. Essentially, the question was, where did it come from? And that was asked, you know, right away. And it was asked fairly loudly. And as I say, directly on the the formal blog that had been set up to encourage scholarly debate. And the questions were slow to appear. The draft edition that Professor Aubink had made available sort of didn't say anything about it at all. The first word that trickled out came from the broadcaster and author, Bettany Hughes, in London's Sunday Times, and was followed up a couple of days later by Aubing himself in the Times Literary Supplement. And what they, they both said was that it had come from, you know, a panel of mummy cartonnage or mummy mask, and a mummy was clearly involved. When that came out, the red flags started going up because... The date for the papyrus, uh, according to Aubink, was late 2nd century or early 3rd century, the Common Era. And really, you don't get papyrus being used in mummy cartonnage after the Ptolemaic period. And so there's sort of a 200-year gap or so 
where it's simply something didn't fit. It, it wasn't right. And so the questions got louder. All kinds of fancy words here. So <laughs> what is cartonage? Basically, it's paper mache. <laughs> so we have all done that. I understand yeah, I mean, that. <laughs> okay, cool. So it's a material that ancient Egyptians made mummy masks out of. And sometimes these strips of papyrus, they had bits of literature or philosophy written on them. So we spoke to Malcolm last week about how we repurpose papyrus because it's quite expensive. So it's, it's kind of the same thing here. So if you destroy the mummy mask and peel it apart, sometimes you can get this literature or philosophy that might be written on these. And some people think that that's more important than, you know, preserving a, a human. <laughs> Yeah. And their legacy. Is that what you're talking about? Yes, exactly. And we're going to talk about that a lot more in our next episode. It plays a key role in this whole story. For now, we're going to take a quick break. We'll hear more about this from Mike when we get back. The first story, as I, uh, as I say, involved mummy cartonnage of one form or another. Uh, one of the things that stood out was in the Bettany Hughes article from the Sunday Times, which came out about a week after the announcement was made. She made reference to the owner of the cartonnage being a high-ranking German officer, and that the owner of the papyrus had sort of tracked its provenance back to this unknown um, German officer. And that sort of, you know, who was it? Is this Nazi loot? Like, all of these questions arose in response to that. And then that part of the story got swept under the rug. And about a year after the announcement was originally made, Obink revised the mummy cartonnage story. And gone was the idea that it came from a mummy. And in its place was a new version, which he, uh, he said the anonymous owner of the papyrus had relayed to him that there had been a mistake in processing, a confusion. Uh, he thought he had disassembled a piece of mummy cartonnage, but he was wrong. It turns out that there, it was domestic or industrial cartonnage. And if you can put scare quotes around the words domestic or industrial cartonnage, do so, because papyrologists don't know what that refers to. It was a term that sort of is not in current usage in our scholarship. And so this new version with the new kind of cartonnage came with it uh, a new provenance story. And it had been purchased, we were told, at a 2011 Christie's auction as part of a miscellaneous lot of papyri that had, some of which had formerly belonged to a scholar named David Robinson, and some of which had come from uh, another collection. And it was kind of a mishmash thing. But Christie's didn't really have good pictures, and so we can really verify this new story. We were left to take Bob Inc. at his word. The story winds up being evolving over the coming months. As scholars start to poke holes in various parts of it, parts that don't add, add up, Obi's story changes to sort of accommodate the, the latest criticism. So it's this very slippery story. Dirk Obing put out a succession of sometimes contradictory provenance stories about the collection history of the fragment that he had. Up to six. No proof was offered of any of this. No documentation was offered. And while a number of classes have said, okay, that's settled, we trust Dirk, a number of us said, we now don't trust anyone. We need to, because time and time again, when no documentation was offered, it turned out that there really was no documentation. Or when documentation was offered, such as in the case of the Gospel of Jesus' wife, the documentation turned out to be fake. So fake provenance documents, the most elaborate sort of faking of provenance that any like Florida amateur pornography dealer could possibly have thought up, or at least in this case, because that's what he turned out to be. And then so a number of us said, we don't trust Dirk. And you know what? That turned out to be right because the, the debate simmered along and there was no information about the Sappho. Volumes and volumes were published about it. Dirk Obbing gave a paper at an American online at an American institution that was published along with several others by him where he simply asserted that this had been in this like old American collection 
why didn't it appear in any of their photographs or records, the number of us asked. Well, they obviously missed it, he said. But they missed an entire sheet of Sappho, uh, but catalogued little scraps. Okay, so all of this is sounding a little bit sketchy. Yeah, and look, we're not even through the first episode yet. It just gets even sketchier. Uh, We're going to take a little tangent now into the world of Hobby Lobby and the Museum of the Bible, because, of course, I will let Ariel take it from here. Turk Obink was hired by the Green family, and the Green family are the billionaire evangelical Christian owners of the Hobby Lobby retail craft store chain. And they are also the founders of the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., which is a $500 million showplace right near the National Mall. The Greens basically went on this massive buying spree starting in 2009 to try to collect a lot of biblical manuscripts from antiquity all the way through the present. You know, Dead Sea Scrolls, Jewish Torahs, early printed Bibles. And they amassed this giant collection and it's on display for the public now in Washington, D.C. It opened in 2017. They're evangelical Christians. Their, their larger sort of theological agenda is to prove that the Bible is this unchanging, unwavering document through the ages. And, and they seek to document that by bringing in Bibles from various areas. They hired Dirk Obink as their top consultant for the purchase of papyri. And Dirk Obink is not that person to go to sort of notionally because, again, he's one of the world's top papyrologists. And they wanted someone who could evaluate all of the goodies that various dealers across the world were coming to the Greens to sell them because the Greens are, are billionaires and they want to buy a lot of, you know, ancient manuscripts. And so, you know, you need someone who can sort of say, well, this is worth buying, this isn't worth buying. And Dirk Ovik winds up becoming hired to do two things for them. One, to help them decide what papyrus to buy. And number two, to help teach their young, you know, largely Christian scholars how to be papyrologists. And he's doing that through various kinds of summer seminars. By 2014, the Museum of the Bible was on all our radars as a problematic institution that had a collection policy that appeared to be, we'll buy anything at any price. The Green family who runs Hobby Lobby funds the Museum of the Bible um, in Washington, D.C. And so the Museum of the Bible is an institution that itself holds a relatively small amount of artifacts. And then the actual collection of artifacts amassed by the representatives of the Green family in the years, you know, around 2009 to 2012, resides elsewhere in America and is far huger. There are untold amounts of manuscripts and there were tales of people, their agents, such as Scott Carroll, simply going to places and buying everything that was there, hundreds and thousands of papyri or texts of any sort. And so this was coming on people's radar as problematic from a collection point of view, collection practice, and problematic from a sort of museological point of view, because what actually was the Museum of the Bible doing there? And what story was it trying to tell? And how was it trying to insert the Christian Bible into the history of America in a way that lots of people didn't really agree was the correct way? And how was it trying to insert Christianity into world history? And how was it trying to subtly or sometimes overtly diminish the role of Judaism in in the story and sort of having a supersessionist view of religious history in which Christianity superseded Judaism, which is an absolute no-no, if you like, in the way we look at the history of religions and certainly the way we look at the history of Judaism and Christianity. So as soon as we noticed that some of these fragments, which appeared to be from the same papyrus, were called P. Green Coal, then we knew that the Green Collection must be mixed up in this in some way. When Dirk Oving first announced the Sappho discovery, 
that alone deeply unsettled the Egypt Exploration Society, which oversees the Oxyrhynchus collection of Oxford. Dirk Ovik was one of the, the general editors of the Oxyrhynchus papyrus, one of the most, probably the most esteemed physician in all papyrology, one of the general editors of the top, of the biggest papyrus collection in the world. That's a really big deal. It gives you tons of access, lots of prestige. You get to decide who gets to study the papyri. And they basically told him, look, you have to decide. They called him out down to London and they said, you need to choose between working for the Greens as a papyrus consultant. They didn't know he was selling stuff then. That would have been probably grounds for immediate firing. You need, you need to decide between working for the Greens as a commercial consultant on papyri or working for the Egypt Exploration Society as a general editor of our collection. You can't do both. They gave him an ultimatum. And I report this in my Atlantic article. What my, my Atlantic article found was that Dirk Obing said, okay, I'm going to stop working for the Greens. I'll keep my job at Oxford. I'll lose that. Don't worry about it. So the Egypt Exploration Society, okay, we're not happy about what you did with Sappho, the fact that you're involved with the commercial market, but you can stay on for now. What Obi didn't tell the Egypt Exploration Society was that he, in fact, never stopped working for the Greens. He was still collecting about $6,000 a month for them and still doing all the things that he was supposed to stop doing. You were right. It just keeps getting <laughs> sketchier and sketchier. It's like, a, um, I feel like we're on like a dun-dun-dun, some sort of like true crime investigation. Have you seen that TikTok fad? And it's like, whoa, whoa. Yes, yes. And it keeps coming up with bad this romance. Is it. That's what this story feels like. It's just like going higher and higher and higher. <laughs> 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 We're going to be breaking glass by the end of it. With like, <laughs> oh, sorry pitch. for that. Um, <laughs> but I am curious. We're talking about the greens a lot. What exactly was Obink doing for the Greens? Okay, so one of his jobs that we know of was to help them buy papyri for their collection and date it appropriately. And he was getting paid for this? I don't know, but Ariel mentioned that he bought a castle in Waco, Texas. And I just don't know if Oxford pay their professors that much. How many Oxford professors have a castle in Texas? (laughs) Raise your hand if you're an Oxford professor listening and you have a castle in Texas. Invite us there, please. (laughs) Anyway, all of this came to a head around a fragment of the New Testament. A few years before the Sappho Papyrus was published, we call it P. Seth Obink. Um, and then there's P. Seth Green for the Green Collections, because we make these little P. Siglers. Um, so P. Macquarie means the papyri from the Macquarie Collection. P. Seth Obink means the Sappho Papyrus owned by Dirk Obink from a mysterious source. Well, that's what I call it. But it means, um, so a few, three years before P. Seth Obink was published, there was a debate between um, a, um, two American scholars of church history, Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman. Um, and Dan Wallace is very much on the side of we need to trust the New Testament accounts, and Bart Ehrman is very much on the side of, well, a lot of these are forgeries, so whatever you're talking about. But in the course of this debate, where Bart Ehrman was hammering on about, like, we didn't even have any early comments, Dan Wallace suddenly revealed that there was a first century copy of the Gospel of Mark that he'd seen, a papyrus copy of the third century that would obviously then be within decades of uh, the writing of the Gospel. And I must admit my reaction was, well, that's a lie. This discovery of of a potentially first century fragment of the Gospel of Mark is announced by a Green family-affiliated scholar at a debate in the University of North Carolina in 2012. And it's super exciting for scholars. Like, and again, if you're an evangelical scholar, devout scholar of Christianity, the idea that there might be a fragment that close to the life of Jesus is just mind-blowing, right? Because if you can show that that fragment basically reflects the verse of the Gospel of Mark on that fragment, basically parallel with the verse of the Gospel of Mark that we read in churches today, 
if you're a believer. That's really exciting because they would argue that it shows that there's evidence that the Bible really hasn't changed that much over time. That the Bible isn't the messy work of human hands, but is God-given and is the unfiltered word of the Almighty, which is what a lot of devout Christians believe. There was a lot of excitement surrounding it, but again, the same questions were raised. Which is, where did this fragment come from? The Green-affiliated scholars said, well, you know what? Fair question, but I'll tell you what. You might think that there have been questions around this first century mark, but let me tell you who our expert is who's certified that it's first century. And he's the best papyrologist in the world. He's Dirk Obing. So you guys have nothing to worry about. Dirk Obing says it's the first century. And if he says it's first century, then it's first century. I mean, who's going to contradict Dirk Obing? Dirk Obing told the Greens a story about provenance for the first century Mark fragment that also wasn't true. So Dirk Obing is, is coming under pressure from his overseers at Oxford to publish a fragment of Mark. It turns out like they have a fragment of Mark that they want him to publish that appears to be very similar to the one they sold to the Greens. So once he publishes this fragment, the Greens see it, they're like, well, wait a second, that's the one we bought. Why is this being published in a series of books that are about fragments from the Oxford collection? That doesn't make sense. We bought this, basically. So uh, this doesn't make sense. And at this point, um, one of Owing's former researchers realizes from his, his end that the alleged first century mark is in fact part of the Oxyrhynchus collection and in fact doesn't date to the first century at all. It's second century, you know, second, maybe third century. And so at that point, this is, you know, Oxford and the Museum of the Bible um, and the Greens are becoming suspicious because there's photographic evidence that this fragment was in the Oxford collection in, at least since the 1980s. I mean, that's when they first started making a photo, photographic record. So there's no way that it, it wasn't part of that collection. And then eventually Oxford and the overseers of the Oxyrhynchus collection, a group known as the Egypt Exploration Society, began working with the Museum of the Bible in D.C., comparing photographs, comparing notes, and realizing that a full 17 of the papyri that the Green family bought from Dirk Obink were stolen from the Oxyrhynchus collection at Oxford. And that's when the investigation, the police investigation begins. It was only by the good agency of Mike Holmes, who's heading up the Scholars Initiative of the Green Collection, who was able to say to the Oxyrhynchus Society people, look, here's a receipt in which Dirk Obing sold us this papyrus. The Egypt Exploration Society had been suspicious before then. Back in 2016, they'd become worried and they tried to lower Dirk Obing's access to the collection because there were whispers on the wind of something happening. But once Mike Holmes was able to show them a receipt that said, I'm selling this and four other New Testament papyri and some others to you, then the Egypt Exploration Society had no choice but to accept what we had all thought unimaginable, that Dirk Obig would be trying to sell papyri from the Oxyrhynchus collection to not only the Museum of the Bible or the Green Collection, but to other people. I should say that this is still alleged. Professor Obig absolutely denies that any of this happens, that there's ongoing legal action and legal cases, which is why a lot of people still can't comment on it. But from the outside, it seems highly likely that material was taken from the Oxyrhynchus Papyrus Collection and was sold by Dirk Obink to these other groups. So there had never been any first century mark. It was always second slash third century mark. It had never been owned properly by Hobby Lobby because the entire time it had been sitting in the magazines of the Egypt Exploration Society Oxyrhynchus Papyrus Collection in Oxford, in the Sackle Library. It, along with a number of others, but a number of other papyri, were actually physically had been transmitted to America and were now sitting in places in California and had been taken from this collection. 
but it was quite devious. Whoever exercised this deviant expertise had gone to the trouble of removing record cards from the Oxymongous collection records and the photographs so that no one would know they were over there. What they didn't know was that some bright spark a while ago took a complete microfilm copy of all of that. So they were able to go back and check. Speaking of the Bible, holy <laughs> shit. <laughs> So if all of this might have happened with the fragment of Mark, where does this leave us with the Sappho fragments that Obank said he discovered in 2014? What does all this stuff about the stolen fragment of Mark have to do with Sappho? Yeah. So this is the point of the story where we really found ourselves wondering whether the provenance story involving the mummy cartonage and the high-ranking German officer was true, or if other provenance stories that Obank offered might you know, also be a little bit contested. Yes, very, very, <laughs> very diplomatic. diplomatic. I appreciate that. Thank you. So where did the Sappho Obank found come from? This is a time when we give you probably our only cliffhanger of the season. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> so we'll answer all of these questions in our next episode. We're really sorry to leave you hanging. If you're interested in learning more about Hobby Lobby and the Greens family, Behind the Bastards actually has a really cool episode on this that they did in February, and we're going to link it in our show notes for you. So that's definitely something worth checking out if you want to hear a little bit more about Hobby Lobby. (laughs) In the meantime, here's a taste of what's to come on Sweet Bitter. So people say, okay, well, what's up with the Sappho then? Because this is the same person that is now almost highly likely, if not proven, to have stolen papyri from the Oxyrhynchus collection and tried to sell them or actually sold them to other people. And people started picking holes in the provenance narrative, the many collection histories that Obinked put forward for the Sappho Papyrus. And so the fact that Turkovnik is now accused of, of, of faking provenance to sell biblical fragments to the Greens raises questions about whether he might also be faking the provenance of the Sappho fragments. We talked about the mummies as our ancestors or our you know, they, they are fellow humans, but they are deceased. They are not a uh, commodity. To commodify this mummies, was, it was a practice, again, of colonialism. Thanks for listening to Sweet Bitter. Our next episode will be released on the 14th of January. We know it's a very long time to wait for that cliffhanger. However, we will be releasing a bonus holiday episode next fortnight, so keep an ear out for that. As always, stick around until the end of the podcast to hear our original song for the pre-2004 discovery, Fragment 58, written and performed by us with some help from our friend of the pod, Carolyn Ruvkin. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe, rate and review us. It really helps other people find the show, especially written reviews on Apple Podcasts. Or if you have the means, you can support us on Patreon. We have tons of bonus content there, including bonus episodes on lesbian poets. If you're really craving some bonus Sappho content over the holidays. Thank you so much for our new patrons this week, Zoe, Marta, Ryan, Bailey, Caitlin, and Lyra. We are so grateful for your support. If you were wondering what to get us for Christmas, all we want for Christmas is you to be a patron in 2021. Yes. (laughs) You're welcome. You're welcome for that impromptu performance. (laughs) I'm like, just kidding. (laughs) Oh my God, please, please layer it over like that. Um, (laughs) You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at SweetBitterPod or contact us on our website, SweetBitterPodcast.com. 
Sweet Bitter is an independent production by me, Ellie Brigida, Elise Knorr, and Lisa Charlotte. Our artwork is by Estella Illustrated. Music is by Lyron Rhapsody. Special thanks to Old Songs, Malcolm Choate, Ariel Sabar, Mike Sampson, and Usama God for sharing their knowledge with us today. If you enjoy this story and you're looking for something to read or gift over the holidays, Ariel has a book about the gospel of Jesus's wife called Veritas that you can purchase. Please shop local. We also encourage you to head over to Asama's site, everydayorientalism.wordpress.com, which we'll link in the show notes for more information on decolonizing the field of papyrus. You can read more about our guests and where to find them on our website in the about section under guests. And now fragment 58. Well, the first iteration anyway. Running away tell you about one of my new favorite podcasts. I would love to hear about it. Tell me more. So it's called Shared History with Cass and Natalie. So a women's history podcast, which we stand. I'm already into it. Amazing. 
one of the episodes that I listened to recently, because I'm binging through their whole series, was about the revenge of the ancient nerds. It's episode 24. And they talk about like beef between the Pergamon and Alexandria library, like the library of Alexandria. And so we're always talking about losing Sappho fragments and they have an episode about burning down libraries. I love it. I need to see this revenge. I know it's so good. So spoiler alert, they may come on our podcast and talk to us about that. But if you're interested in women in history, which we know that you are, go and check out Shared History wherever you get your podcasts.